Galatians chapter 4, and we will be looking at 8 through 11, Galatians chapter 4, amazing passage as you get to study through here, just amazing. So if you would follow along as I read from verse 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul, moved by the Spirit of God, writes in verse 8, however at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. In this larger context, if you've been with us uh, at any length of time, you know we've been working verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And our passage obviously fits into a larger context. In the larger context here, Paul has been explaining the gospel. He's carefully been articulating the truths and the details of the gospel as only he can. He's been teaching that justification is by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. In other words, you are saved from God's eternal judgment through faith alone in Jesus alone. That has been his mantra from the beginning. He's he just come at this at every different angle that he can. He has shown to his readers as we work our way to our text that the gospel of grace is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant which came before the law of Moses. And the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, cannot invalidate the covenant that was made with Abraham because the covenant with Abraham preceded the covenant with Moses. Paul says this in chapter 3. So the gospel that Paul preached, the true gospel that the apostles preached and that every true Christian preaches is linked to the Abrahamic covenant because it is by faith, as is the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember, Abraham believed God and was accredited to him as righteousness. That was in Genesis. That's the same truth that you and I are saved by. We believed God and it was accredited to us as righteousness. The Mosaic Covenant is not blessing through faith, but through perfectly doing. To be blessed in the Mosaic Covenant, you must do it perfectly. Faith has no part in the Mosaic Covenant. And any failure to keep the Mosaic law results in condemnation. It results in judgment. It results in wrath. The Mosaic promises death, where the Abrahamic covenant, in contrast, promises life for those who believe. Paul explained wonderfully in the last part of chapter 3 the function of the law of Moses. Because you, you have to ask the question, then why in the world do we have the law of Moses? Why did, why did God give the law to Moses who then give it to Israel? If it has no function in our salvation, if you're not saved by keeping the law only by faith, then what is the function or purpose of the law? Great question. Chapter 3, the last half of that answers the question. And we learn from that that the law of Moses was never intended to save sinners. God did not give it to justify sinners. He did not even give it to sanctify saints. It, 
we learn from chapter 3 that it came to reveal, to uncover, and to show the reality of the depth of our depravity. It came to show the utter sinfulness of our sinful acts. Our sin was not just missing the mark. The law shows just how depraved our actions are, just how wicked and evil each of us are as a sinner. We learn that from the law. We learn that the law says that our acts are treasonous. They are an, a, a direct assault on the glory of God and deserve it of his wrath. That's what the law of Moses does, at least that. And we learn from chapter 3, verse 24, just again to remind us, in verse 24, kind of a hinged passage here. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law has accomplished its purpose when it leads you to the foot of the cross to place your faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's what the law's intention is. The law was never intended to justify a sinner. It only condemns. We learn by the end of chapter 3, into the beginning of chapter 4, as a result of faith in Christ, we are heirs of God. We are heirs of God, not through works of obedience to Moses, but we are heirs of God through faith in Jesus Christ, Him crucified and resurrected. When you come into chapter 4, the verse 7 verses, the Apostle Paul explained even further the gospel and its benefits and blessings. Last week we looked at this. He states the purpose in verses 4 and 5 of Christ's death. It was to redeem us in order to adopt us as sons. With that adoption comes all the privileges and all the rights that come with being in that position you are by grace through faith an adopted adult son of the living God. Therefore, you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Therefore, all that belongs to the creator of the universe belongs to you by grace as a result of faith in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. This is the gospel of grace. It is the foundation of any true church. You deviate from it, you're going into heresy, and now you're, you're outside of the pale of orthodoxy. We're talking about the gospel of grace, and the Apostle Paul is laying out verse after verse after verse details of this gospel of grace. We know then, coming to our section, verses 8 through 11, that he draws his gaze, Paul does, on the situation at hand in Galatia. The tone of, his, of these verses here is more of a rebuke, a reproof, if you will. It, it's, it's meant to shake them up a bit. It's meant to stop them in their tracks from sliding away from the gospel of grace. It, it's meant to rescue them from the clutches of legalism that they're starting to leak into. He does not want them returning to works righteousness. He doesn't want them returning to Moses. He wants them to stand firm in the grace of God, in the gospel. Now, these verses 8 through 11, to help these Galatians stand in the grace, 
In verse 8, he's going to remind them of their past bondage. It's good to remember how, where we've been brought from. In verses 9, he's going to remind them of their present deliverance, where it says there in verse 9 that they know God and that God knows them. He's going to reveal to them the reality of their present desire, which is the second half of verse 9 into 10. He's going to show that it is a returning to slavery. And then he's going to finish in verse 11, revealing the concern of his heart, which becomes a rebuke to them. I fear for you in verse 11, if you notice, look there. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. What would cause him to think that way? was this desire to return back to Moses, back to law. Okay, so then, look at verse 8, please. To help us stand firm in grace, let us remember where we used to be. Verse 8, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Now, he's reminding them there of, of something that's not too distant past to these people. He's reminding them of their life before Jesus Christ, before the gospel came to Galatia. And it's only been a few years since Paul came there with the gospel at first. He came there preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified only maybe two, three, four years ago. When he came to them, think of this, the Galatians were not living the high life. They, they, were, they were spiritual slaves, as it says in verse 8. They were spiritual slaves when, Jesus, when, when Paul found them when he preached the gospel. He wants to remind them of where they've been brought from. He wants to remind them of what it once was like. Do you remember your life before Christ came and rescued you? Do you remember life apart from Christ? I do. I was 30 years old when God saved me. I had lots of practice as a pagan. I remember it's not the high life. And it's sad, but we can quickly forget, can't we? The sad and sorry condition that we were in when the Lord found us. To help us stay the path with Christ, to help us stay the path of grace, just as the table so wonderfully today is a reminder, a memorial. So too, Paul says in verse 8 to them, remember who you once were. You were slaves to that which was not a God before you knew God. He wants them to remember. It's good for us to remember. Israel was always exhorted to remember. The church is, is given this ordinance to remember. Deuteronomy, think of this, 1515, through Moses, God says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. You would think that would be hard to forget if you were an Israelite. But they would forget very easily, did they not? And so they're called to remember. Remember the redemption. In Ephesians 2.12, we're called to remember. Remember that you were at that time, before you were saved, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. I can't think of any worse place to be than verse 12 of Ephesians 2. In fact, but the thing is, that's where we all were before Christ converted us. Do you remember that? Ephesians 4.17 
this is what I want you to remember from what Paul is calling the Galatians to remember that they were slaves. I want to remind you, just again, reminding you what it's like before Christ saves you. Ephesians 4, 17 and 19, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And this is what he wants them to remember. Don't walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's, that's the pagan world. That's the world outside of Christ. That's who I was before salvation. That's who you were before salvation. Ephesians 2, he says this. Do you remember this? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you remember being spiritually dead to your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? Among them we too all formerly, remember, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's more. Ephesians 5.8, I want us to remember, because Paul does in Ephesians 5.8, you were formerly darkness, and now you're light. Titus 3.2, says to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why, Paul? Well, he wants us to remember the next verse. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Not very flattering, but very true. Very true. So here in Galatians then, 4, 8 He's reminding them of their past, their, their past pre-conversion ways. When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which were by nature no gods. Look at what he says there in 8. When you did not know God. They were not only ignorant of the true God, but they did not know him in, in an experiential way. The word here for know does not mean in the everyday sense of acquiring knowledge, but to experience. In reminding the Galatians here that they did not know God, Paul's maintaining that they had no experience of God and did not realize that he was the only God. Hence, the gods they worshipped were no gods at all. But he is, he is emphasizing in verse 8 the connection of slavery being and having no personal experience with the true God. And as we just read in Ephesians 4, to not know God in this way is to be separated from Him, and it is to be estranged from Him. That's what it means before you are saved. You are separated from God because of our sin. See? Verse 8, He's reminding them that you were once without an experience of God, and you were slaves to those who are no gods. Now, in verse 8, when he says you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods, this is fascinating. 
They were subject to those which by nature are no gods. Listen to this. Most likely it's referring to Gentiles, obviously, because the Israels, at least in their scriptures, they were uh, connected to Yahweh, the true God. So I think he's, he is sorting out the Gentiles in verse 8, saying to them that before the gospel came to you Gentiles, you who are ignorant and had no experience of the true God, you were enslaved to those which by nature are no gods. We learn from Acts 14 that the worship that happened in Galatia was to Zeus in Hermas, right? The, the, the temple of Diana was in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, where they had over a thousand cultic prostitutes that would go and, and they would practice their worship, right? It was a gross, pagan, polytheistic way. This is going on. In Galatia region, these are the ones that they are enslaved to who are by nature not gods. The word nature there is, has the idea of species or kind. In fact, it's used that way in the Septuagint in Genesis of their kind. Now get this. They were enslaved, the pagans here, to those who weren't of the god species. They weren't of the God's nature. Well, if you're not of God's nature, then you're not deity. Right? Remember when Christ walked on the planet, he said he and the Father are one. He's saying I'm, it, the Father's working and I'm working. And they were going to throw stones at him because he was not only saying that he's the son, but he's saying that he's equal with God. He's of the same nature. This is saying here that the, 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 the pagans worship gods who are by nature who are by species not deity okay they're not god at all okay the, so then they are even though the pagans call them gods and they worship them as gods and serve them as gods they are not of god's nature they're they're not deity they're 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 there's only one true god and all other so-called gods are inventions of the unconverted unregenerate mind they're, of no, they're not of the same species of deity. Therefore, they're not God, is what the word is implying. Okay? Now, therefore, they're the invention of fallen man. The spiritually blind and spiritually dead minds of the pagan world have invented these gods that they are enslaved to. Every false god of every place on the planet of every generation and era is of man's creation. Okay? They are not by nature gods, therefore they are a fraud. They are false gods. There's only one true God. In Isaiah, because Israel was always tempted by the nations around them to abandon Yahweh in the worship of the true God to worship the false gods. In Isaiah 37, it says this about the king of Assyria who went around to the different pagan nations and was conquering these different nations. And it says he also conquered their gods. And listen to what it says here. Isaiah 37, 17 and 18. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, militarily, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. 
Okay. These gods that the pagan that that the Galatians used to worship obviously are no gods at all. They were subject to that which is not of God's species. They're not of a deity. The Corinthians had the same problem. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, some of the believers were mingling with the pagans in, in the worship, in the pagan worship. And Paul writes to them and says about the idols, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, Paul says, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if this, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords in the pagan theology, not in reality, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, though the false gods that Paul's mentioning here in Galatians 4.8 are the invention of man, therefore just made up. It's like a movie. The characters are just made up. Man is not the ultimate source. The authors of these ide ideologies and theologies and philosophies that are connected to these false gods, they, they come from Satan, right? They, they come from fallen angels. They come from demons, 1 John 5, 19 would say the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. The evil one, of course, is Satan. His character is classified as evil. Therefore, his influence is going to be towards evil. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. It says also that he's the god of this age. He is the father of lies. He's constantly peddling his ideas called doctrine of demons. These doctrine of demons are designed to keep you enslaved to him and to keep people from yielding to Christ, to distract even true believers from Christ. And it's called doctrines of demons. For instance, listen to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. It's a nice parallel to what Paul is exhorting the Galatians to stay away from. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. How? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. So these false teachers don't have a conscience that's operating. It's seared. That means it's lost its feeling. Okay? Men, and what is the doctrine of demons? Men who forbid marriage, celibacy, and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Again, there, is, there are these legalistic tendencies and details that doctrines of demons come and why would anybody follow a doctrine of a demon? Well, obviously, they don't know it's from a demon. But what they're thinking, the deception is, this is how you please God. This is how you be righteous in your practice. Stay away from marriage. So stay away from women and stay away from meat. <laughs> Just eat vegetables. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want any part of that religion. <laughs> right? I like my wife and I like meat. So 
Praise God for the cross. <laughs> right? Okay. Now all this to say, right? Galatians 4.8, he's saying, he's reminding them, this is how you used to live. When you were ignorant of the true God and had no relationship with the true God, you were enslaved to these things that aren't gods at all. And the theology and the philosophies of these false Zeus-worshipping things is all doctrines of demons from the mind of fallen man in darkened hearts. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 19, and 20. It gets even more serious here. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? He's not giving them credit for that. But what, listen to what he says. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And he says, I don't want you to be sharers with demons. So these false gods with these false ideologies, these are actually the doctrines of demons. And therefore, when you adhere, subject yourself to their doctrine and their practices, when you offer sacrifice, you're actually offering sacrifice to demons. That didn't sound very good. To be ignorant of the true God then, back to Galatians here, is to be enslaved to false gods and demons. All these false religions have their practices and doctrines and rules and regulations and sacrifices required. All these are steps and patterns and how to serve their gods. How you approach and please them is all laid out in these false ideologies. They all have penalties for not pleasing them and that's how they keep people in line. And of course, it's all for the sake of control. It's all for the sake of control. And this is true of every false religion to this day. To this day. In Acts 14, we won't turn there, um, Paul's missionary journey to this region of Galatia, a man was healed through Paul. And the crowds were so amazed by what they saw that they wanted to bring sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they said, the gods have come down to earth and become like one of us. And so they wanted to offer sacrifice. And they wanted to, offer, they wanted to sacrifice a bull and other things to Paul and Barnabas. And, and it was all very excited. It was a frenzy. It was a pagan frenzy, you know. Um, Paul, upon hearing that, goes out and says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. They tore their robes to show the seriousness. They rushed out into the crowd, it says in Acts 14, and they said, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you, human nature, and preach the gospel, preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. These people here in Galatia were hearing that message and hearing the, the, the message of turning from this to that. Avoid these vain things. Verse 8 of Galatians 4, they were in bondage to these false gods. They were slaves of demons. Now think it, to be under the tyranny of a demon is not a life of inner peace and joy. 
It's not a life of inner peace and joy. To be under the oppressive burdens of these false religions was not happiness. It was not freedom. They did not escape the burden. If you can recall the burden of an unforgiven soul, can you, can you remember the misery of that condition? Can you remember the misery? And maybe you couldn't even explain it. But your soul and the burden of sin upon your soul, and, and there's no peace, there's no inner peace, there's no happiness in the unconverted false religions. And notice where he goes to in verse 9, please. He goes from remembering your past to realize the present deliverance that you're in right now. Do you see verse 9? He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Stopping right there. The emphasis again is on knowing God. In verse 8 is when they did not know him. Verse 9, now that you've come to know him, here is the freedom of the gospel described. It's compared to knowing God. It is through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that those who were once separated from God, ignorant of his existence, and separated from his life, they now know the true God in the way described here. It is to know him personally and intimately. This is different than any other religious claims on the planet. Through the gospel, that is a reality. Think of this, please. The greatest blessing of the gospel of grace is coming to have an intimate, personal knowledge of the living God. It is possible to know him in that way, isn't it? Please say yes. <laughs> it is even the claim of Christianity. True Christianity says you can know God personally. You can, sit, can you then say right here with a genuine conf conviction and affection of your soul that I know God in this way? I know him personally. I know him intimately. I know him experientially. See, religion is just what you do. Christianity is who you know. It has do in it, but it's who you know. Do you know God in this way? This is the greatest privilege of, in the work of the gospel of grace. In fact, it is the promise of the new covenant. In the writer to Hebrews... In chapter 8, verse 11 of the New Testament book of Hebrews, he's quoting Jeremiah 31 and the New Testament promise. Jeremiah is 550 plus years before Jesus Christ, promising a new covenant that would replace the old covenant of Moses. The writer of the Hebrews is going to quote Jeremiah 31, and in verse 11 it says this, You shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? I'm glad you asked. For all will know me from the least to the greatest. Do you get that? All will know me. In the new covenant, in contrast to the old covenant, in the new covenant, every single person who is in the new covenant has an intimate personal knowledge with the living God. Because how do you get into the new covenant? By grace through faith. It's believing in Christ. Everybody who's in the new covenant has an intimate knowledge of God. That's not true of the old covenant, you see. Everyone in the new covenant possesses that knowledge. That's glorious. Glorious. It is the reality then of every single one in the new covenant 
through faith in Christ to have this experiential knowledge of the true and living God. Now, it is, please, not, it isn't this, that I know about God. It isn't I've heard about you, God, but it is I actually know you, God. I actually know you. The Greek term for knowledge, New Testament, is used to translate the Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The, the, the Hebrew word, yada, has a wide range of translations but it, or meanings, but what it focuses on when it talks in the context of knowing somebody, it speaks of a personal, intimate, experiential knowledge. In fact, in Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, and the result was junior. <laughs> right? That's intimacy. The word yada is used there, to know. The, the Greek term gnosis is used to translate that Old Testament term. So when you come to Galatians 4, 9, to know God in the way that Paul is saying here, he's talking about this intimacy, this personal experiential knowledge of the living God. Now think, it is, if it's knowing from experience, it takes an honest openness it takes a willing openness of your heart, mind, and desires and emotions so that the other person can say that I know you. Isn't that true? I mean, you don't know me, right? That doesn't mean I don't want you to. It's just I haven't been around you, right? But those who know you, what do we even mean by that? Yeah, I know who Nathan is. He's about this big and this wide, and he lives over there. That's not knowing you, right? But those who know you know your personality, what makes you tick, what makes you angry, what makes you happy, you know, all those things. That's the same idea here. But now that you have come to know God, wow, I don't, it's more than knowing about him. Of course, theology and doctrine informs the mind of who God is and, and, the, and the, the theology is glorious but if it stops there without getting to my heart and giving me an, an experiential knowledge of that which I'm reading then it's just head knowledge it has no saving value so what is he talking he's saying here that God can be known but in order for him to be known in the way Paul is saying He's obviously implying that God must make himself known to you because you can't get there from here. You don't go and just say, I'm going to go know God and go read the Bible. And if, but if God does not reveal himself to you, even reading the Bible, you will not know him in the way that Paul is saying here. I've read a lot of commentaries from people who do not believe in the deity of Christ and the resurrection and wrote a lot of commentaries and they know the Bible better than I know it, but they don't know him. They don't know him, right? So then, what am I saying here? They came to know the living God in verse 9 because God revealed himself to them. Listen to Matthew 11. There's different places, but I just want to have you listen to Matthew 11, 25 through 27. 
Jesus is praying to his father. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's his choice. Yes, Father, for this way was, way, was well-pleasing in your sight. It made you happy to do that. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, because they spend eternity together. There's intimacy. Oh, and then he finishes with this. Oh, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So if you know God intimately in the way the Father and Son know each other, it's because in sovereign grace, God has revealed himself to you. He has removed the blinders. Jesus says in Matthew 16, who, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say this, some say this, some say this prophet. But Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? Oh, you're the, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. You're so smart. You went up on that hill and did your homework. No. How did he come to know that? Flesh and blood did not tell you that, reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Father convinced Peter of what he's looking at, and he came to know that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and he knew him intimately. He knew him experientially. He knew who he was by the revelation of God. Okay? 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to this. Those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So satanic blindness keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory that pertains, belongs to Christ, who is the image of God. Okay? So they're blinded to Christ's glory and his deity. Then it goes on to say this in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And then verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness. When did he say that? Genesis 1-3. Let there be light. That same God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you are convinced of who Christ is, and you have an, you have an intimacy and a, 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 an intimate relational knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he is the image of God, that he's the glory of the Father who came from heaven to earth. If you're convinced of that and you walk in his steps and you desire to love him and know him, it's because the Father made him known to you. He opened your heart and your eyes to that. You did not come to that on your own. You're not that smart, and neither am I. It has nothing to do with theology. It has everything to do with divine revelation, everything to do with sovereign grace, Sovereign grace of God to reveal to you who he is. That's how you come to know him. That is wonderful. That is, that is awesome. I love that. And this takes place, beloved, in our hearts. So says the text. 
right? It takes place in our hearts. Our hearts, parallel with our minds, interchangeable in the New Testament, in the Bible. Heart, mind, our inner person, the core of our being, our true self. It is there that God illumines to us the reality of Jesus Christ. We see him as he truly is. How in the world can anybody take up their cross and follow Jesus Christ willingly if they're not convinced of who he is? You cannot fake that. Because as soon as the bullets start flying, you give up, right? You quit. I'm just kidding. Just kidding, right? When it, when it, when, when it was... When it was in my favor to be, pretend to be religious, yeah, this is cool, but now that bullets are flying, I don't want any part of it. How do you explain the one who says, I don't care if the bullets are flying, I'm keeping going. It's sovereign grace who has uncovered to you who he is. You know him. You will not abandon him. You know him personally, intimately. You come to know him as your Lord, the Lord of glory, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth. You come to say he's my Lord. You see him as your creator, your, your redeemer, your savior. How about my ever-present help in trouble, my constant companion in sorrow and happiness? How about the, you know him to be the balm to your wounded soul? You can't fake that. That comes from knowing him, and you know him because he made himself known to you. Do you know him as your rock when you're not so sturdy and your refuge when you're not so brave? Do you know him like this? This is what Paul's saying to the Galatians. When you were a pagan, you didn't know God like this, but now you've come to know God like this. You know him that way. How about... Can you say with David that the Lord is my shepherd? How can he say that? By divine revelation, he's convinced in his soul. He knows him. He's, the Lord is not a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This is what he says. This is the blessing of the New Testament. This is the, the blessing of the gospel. The gospel of grace produces this. You cannot come to know him any other way. It's not through Moses. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, it is worth defending. This knowledge of God, this knowing him, is equated to eternal life. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To have eternal life, to have God's kind of life, is the same as knowing him personally. It's what it means to have eternal life. It's what it means to have this knowledge of God. It's interchangeable with eternal life. It's a kind of life. Everybody's going to live forever somewhere. So eternal life is not primarily longevity. It is quality. To know God personally, intimately, as Jesus Christ knows the Father, is by divine revelation and grace, and it is to have eternal life. And that is through the gospel, only through the gospel. Wow. Is there anything in this life, then, to be valued more than this intimate, personal relationship with the living God. Is there anything to have a higher value 
Is there any person you would rather, you know what? I'm going to turn my back on this person so that I might know that person. Is there anybody greater than Jesus Christ? Is there anything more precious and desirous of your soul than to know him that way? Listen to the Apostle Paul. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count right now presently all things to be loss in view, in comparison of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The Apostle Paul compared everything to knowing Christ. And he says nothing compares to knowing Christ. So anything that would come in the way and impede or eclipse his view of Christ, he takes it and throws it overboard. It's, it's valueless. It's like dung. It's scubala. Get it out of here. There's no relationship that should get in the way of you and Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. And it's through the gospel. But back in Galatians 4, 9, look at what he says as he wants to, them to realize the deliverance that they live in right now. He, he, he kind of corrects what he said when he says that you've come to know God, rather to be known by God. Rather to be known by God. To be known by him. God, and it's beyond omniscience. God is omniscient and knows everything about everything and everyone. That's, it's more than that. This knowledge of God here is connected to like his choice of you. He knows you by choice. He knows you intimately, personally by choice. In fact, Amos 3.2 says in the Old Testament that of all the nations of the world on, on the globe, only Israel have I known well, is God ignorant of all the other nations on the planet when he says that only Israel have I known? No. In fact, some translations said, of all the nations that I have chosen. So it's almost the idea then of, of knowing from God's perspective, it has the idea of choosing. Okay? To know you intimately means he has made a choice to know you intimately in this fashion. And the only way you can come to know him in the way we just said is because God first knew you. And he came to you. And he chose to make himself known to you. He came to disclose himself to you. He does not need you to disclose yourself to him. He's not ignorant of every dark thing of the mind in your life. He is not ignorant of any part of me. He does not need me to reveal myself to him. But he has chosen to know you and to love you. And he came to you and made himself known to you through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And you said, wow, I count all things lost to know him. That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel of grace. Jesus says in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. It's this mutual knowledge. This personal, intimate relationship of God for his own. Now that in, in chapter 4 of Galatians, we go from verse 8 where, where he says, I want you to remember what you used to be like, verse 9, but I want you to remember where you stand now. Realize the deliverance that you live in now by knowing God and being known by the true and living God. 
that leads him then to his dismay in, in the middle of verse 9 into verse 10. Notice what he says here. Now it gets to he, he, his, his heart being revealed here as, as, a, as a good shepherd himself, as a, as a pastor. And he says, how is it, based on what I just said, you have this intimate knowledge of God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? Right? What an incredible, stunning thing for Paul to come to hear that these people are abandoning the gospel, the gospel of grace. He says, how is it there in verse 9? How is it? Paul's amazed. How, how can you say that you have an intimate personal relationship with God? You're living in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. All that is all of grace. How then can you turn back to that which you once were? How can you do that, he says. And in verse 9, look what he says. How is it that you turn back again, again, to the weak and worthless elemental things. He calls the elemental things weak and worthless. Weak is obviously without strength, no ability to do that which it would desire to do. Worthless means without value. It's, it's the word for poor, beggarly. So the things that he's describing here that they're going back to, these elemental things, these basic things, are weak and valueless, weak and worthless, weak they cannot save. They cannot change anybody. They're poor. They have no value. These basic building block principles where it says to the weak and worthless elemental things. In Colossians 2.8, we looked at this last week, but listen to how Paul uses the word elemental things in Colossians 2.8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Rather than according to Christ. So these pagan philosophies in Colossians are being compared to the elemental principles that are being compared to Jesus Christ and they really don't compare to Jesus Christ. Here in Galatians, he says these, these weak and worthless elemental things. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 9, please. This is amazing right here. To which you desire to be enslaved all over again. This really reveals their heart here. Do you see it there? To the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. That word desire there is, it means a continual, ongoing, habitual, constant activity. So it could be translated, you are desiring, always desiring. Now this is fascinating for the word desire is this is their will. This is their wish, if you will. In other words, this is not by deception. They're not tricked by using this word. This is their desire, and it's a constant desire. They were not being tricked to return to bondage, but this is what they wanted. Wow. It is, think of it, it is, it is a desire, the slavery over the freedom that comes from faith in Christ in the power of the Spirit. We would think that person was nuts. I think Paul does too when he says, how is it that you want to do this? 
They would rather live by the outer rules and regulations than by daily faith in Christ. Instead of a daily walk with Jesus Christ and the intimacy of that relationship, trusting in the one who gave his life for them, they would rather live by rules and regulations. It appeals to our flesh. It's easier, some say. Look what it says in 5.1 of Galatians. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Now back to verse 9. Notice what he says here. It says to be enslaved all over again in the last part of verse 9. To which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Once more. Back to where you came. How do you go from freedom to slavery? How do you do that? How do you willingly want that? They're comfortable in these things or they wouldn't be desiring them. They want this. Probably to avoid persecution because the Jews were heavy on persecution when you read Acts 13 and 14 for the message of grace really rankled the Judaizers. But they're comfortable in this and Paul writes to them, how can you do this? How can you go back? They're comfortable with these laws because the laws don't demand faith. You just blindly do them. You, you check the box. You find your comfort in your own works. You, you're, you're satisfied with your life and your religious life. You're satisfied with your level of growth, with your understanding of God. That's legalism. Legalism keeps you shackled and keeps you from growing and it doesn't lead you to maturity. It keeps you in infancy and if anything, it keeps you going backwards. And worse than even being in infancy, it keeps you in slavery. But people are drawn to that because it appeals to the flesh. Now look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. These are the elemental things that he mentioned in verse 9. I think this is obviously revealing that this is the law of Moses that was coming against these Gentile professing Christians. The Judaizers came and they're, they're wanting these Christians to, verse 10, practice Judaism and observing these days and months and seasons and years. In chapter 5, he'll mention circumcision. These pagans, think now, these pagans were enslaved to their paganism before they came to Christ. And now they are desiring to practice the law of Moses. And Paul says this is to return to slavery. Just as you were before you came to Christ, you were enslaved to the pagan theologies. Now that you've come to Christ and now the temptation to go back to Moses is to then go back into slavery. Paul then, think of this. Paul is equating the law of Moses with paganism. 
Both, listen now, both are weak and worthless. To do what? To produce life. The law, if there was a law to produce life, then law would be the source of life. But law cannot save. The law of Moses cannot produce justification, cannot produce righteousness in your heart. It's weak in that way. Romans 8 even says that, right? The law is weak because we are weak. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and good and righteous and from God. But it is weak in the sense it cannot produce eternal life. It only damns. It only condemns because of our weakness. But the law is said to be weak because it cannot do that. The gospel gave you an intimate living relationship with God, which is to have eternal life. And it's by faith in Christ, not works of the law. The law comes and once Christ has come, the law of Moses is then compared to the law of any other pagan religion because both are worthless in producing eternal life. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Because he says in verse 9, you want to return back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. So that's where you once were. Verse 10 says you observe days and months and seasons and years. Well, what's he talking about? It's most likely the days and the months and seasons and years of the Mosaic law. Because think of it, what would be... The word observe here in verse 10, you observe, it means to watch, watch very closely. It's an intense word, to watch punctiliously, right? It's to, be, uh, it's, it's to pay close and careful attention to. That's in verse 10. You observe, you closely attend to these things, and it's a present tense. So you're constantly doing, verse 10, observing days, months, seasons, and years. What would be the days? Well, most likely Sabbath. Most likely Sabbath. Now, in the Jewish calendar, Sabbath was Saturday. According to Exodus 31, 12 through 17, it's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. In your Bible, Sabbath was never given to New Covenant people. It was never given to the church. It was only given to Israel. It has a purpose. And as you learn from reading the Gospels... What was one of Jesus' most heinous crimes, according to the Judaizers? <laughs> yeah, breaking the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, breaking their Sabbath. Because to the Judaizer, first century, the Sabbath was one of the most distinctive marks of them opposed to the Gentiles and the pagans. But once Christ has come, do you see? This is what we need to understand. Once Christ has come, that which the law pointed to, that which the law said, hey, look. Once he's come, the law has, needs to be set aside. Hebrews says it's made obsolete. It's no longer in function. It's like having, being on a faraway trip and having a picture of me wifey right here, and you Google eye it, you know, and you say, man, I can't wait to see you. And then when you show up at home and you see her, you don't pay attention to her. You keep looking at the picture. How stupid is that? That's what it means to go back to the law of Moses, Christian. That which the Moses pointed to has already come. Isn't that what Colossians 2 says? Colossians 2 says it like this, if I can find it in my notes. 
If I can, it's in the Bible here. It is 2.16, right? Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians because the Colossians were being tempted by the same thing. It says in 2.16 of Colossians, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. That's all Jewish stuff. Listen now. Why should you not pay attention to that? He says to these Christians. Things which are mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. The substance, the reality belongs to Christ. Is Christ not our Sabbath? Is Christ not the fulfillment of every feast of God in the Old Covenant? Is Christ not our Passover? We are not to celebrate Passover. He's already come, right? He's already there. We're not to celebrate Sabbath. Why? He's already come. The Presbyterians say we need Sabbath and Sunday. No, it's not. If you want it to be Sunday, that's cool, but don't tell me it's Sunday because Sabbath is Saturday. <laughs> Does God command the church to, to live by Sabbath? No, you cannot find it in the New Testament. You know why? Because the substance has come. Jesus has come. Jesus <sighs> He fulfilled all righteousness. Did he not? John the Baptist baptized me. Oh, no, you should baptize me, man. You're, you're the Lord. He says, no, it's, it's right to fulfill all righteousness at this time. Did Jesus Christ ever live contrary to the law of Moses? Never. He never once transgressed the law of God. He never transgressed the law of Moses. He never, ever had a thought contrary or an act or a word contrary to Moses. He fulfilled all righteousness. That's why 1 John can say he is the righteous one. Jeremiah 23 says he is the righteous one. The Lord my righteousness. God demands perfect righteousness. And if his righteousness is imputed to you and it ain't perfect, what good is that? I already don't have a perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ has a perfect righteousness because he never did not fulfill the law of Moses. He fulfilled it positively in his walking his life and living the 33 years he lived, never breaking the law. And then when he went to the cross, he fulfilled the negative aspect of it. And what is that? The punishment due to those who have broken the law. So in Christ Jesus, the positive and negative aspects of the law of Moses are perfectly fulfilled. And on that cross, he fulfilled all righteousness. How do you know the tomb is empty? He would not have raised from the dead if that was not true. But he has accomplished perfect righteousness. If he's accomplished perfect righteousness, why in the world do the Galatians tempted to go back to living by law? It's like, it's like going to graduate school and going back to second grade. How stupid. This is what Paul's saying. You observe these days. You deserve these months, these years. Why? It's all preparation for the one who's come. It's all preparation. Is Christ sufficient for the righteousness required? Of course he is. Then why do you live by law? Live in the freedom that comes through faith in Christ. That's glorious. It'd be like living, it'd be like in jail and somebody paid your 
penalty that puts you there and they come and they unlock the door and you just stay there. When you freely could go out the door, they might even open it for you. Say, hey, fool, it's open. Let's go. No, I like it right here, man. It's easier. I don't have to work. I get three square meals. It's good right here. Right? That's legalism. It's foolishness. And to go back to legalism is causing angst to Paul. Now, why is it causing him angst? Think of this. Until the Galatians come to recognize the reality of the law being finished, inferior, obsolete, they will lapse into the same kind of observance of religious holidays that they used to do when they worshipped the Roman Empire. Same idea. So then, Paul's thrust here is clear, very clear. The Jewish calendar of the Mosaic law is nothing but paganism revisited. In equating observance of the law with paganism, Paul makes the law the ultimate taboo for the child of Abraham. And isn't any wonder the Judaizers hated Paul? They couldn't handle that statement. You know why? Because they didn't understand Abraham and they didn't understand Moses and they certainly did not understand Christ. But if you understand Abraham and understand Moses and understand Christ, you will rejoice that you have been set free from the law. Romans 6 you're no long, says you're no longer under law, doesn't it? If you're not under law, what are you under? Grace. It's either that or not, right? It's either that or not. I'm no longer under law. I'm under grace. And grace is by faith. And the, and the Holy Spirit, which we will look at in the weeks ahead in chapter 5, is just incredible, incredible, incredible reality of the blessings of the gospel. So think of this as we shut this down. Since Christ has come, the law of Moses has been perfectly fulfilled in his earthly life, as we just said, he positively fulfilled all righteousness. He never transgressed. On the cross, he paid the punishment that the law demands. Therefore, he fulfilled all the negative aspects by dying as a guilty sinner. He took the punishment we deserved and died as a substitutionary sacrifice. In so doing, he can offer a full pardon, a redemption, spiritual freedom, to all who believe in him. This is guaranteed true by the resurrection. His tomb is empty. The death could not hold him, and he is alive forevermore. To those who believe in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to them, and God declares them as righteous as Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of free grace. This is the message of our Lord. This is the message of his church to the whole world. This is the power of God to save sinners. This is the way God transformed the Roman Empire in the early centuries. This is how he transformed medieval Europe and brought about the, trans the Reformation and brought them out of the Dark Ages and, and changed the whole Western world. This is the message of the two great awakenings in America. This is the message that delivered Scotland from Catholic rule in the days of John Knox. This is the message that caused many a rich man to sell all they had, to leave his home, and to take the gospel to the faraway lands in this world, risking life and limb for the glory of God and the joy of all people. This is the message that they took. It is this gospel that constrained Amy Carmichael to go to India and to spend her entire adult life there serving the Lord and the lost folks of that world. 
This is the gospel that went with John Payton from Scotland to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific in the 1800s, transforming savage cannibals into humble worshipers of Jesus Christ. It was not by law. It was by the power of the gospel of grace. Get that in your head. The gospel went and delivered people from spiritual darkness and slavery to light and liberty, from an ignorance of God to an intimate personal love of God. It is said that when Peyton arrived on the New Hebrides in 1858, you couldn't find a Christian on the island. When he left 40 years later, you couldn't find a heathen. And it's all of grace. And we go on and on and on, we could. In fact, this is the message that has delivered you from slavery to sin and Satan and the law. Amen? You, like them, just mentioned that we just read about, believed God and was credited as righteousness apart from the works of the law. By his grace, the shackles are removed, the prison doors are flung open, and we have been set free in Christ. Are you now going to willingly return to bondage? As though you don't know God intimately? As though you never knew him personally? How can this be? Is that even possible to abandon Christ in this way? The apostle is so deeply troubled. He says in verse 11, I fear. And the way it's put together, he's constantly fearing for you. I'm afraid for you, Galatians. What caused the fear in the second half of verse 11 is that I labored over you in vain. The word labor is to labor to exhaustion. Sweat and tears is verse 11. Now get this. If there's such intensity in verse 11, do you think it matters that a Christian is mingling with law? If it wasn't a big deal, why would verse 11 be there? If it didn't affect your eternal soul, why would verse 11 be there? Verse 11 shows how jealous, how intense Paul was for the gospel of grace and to keep it pure. Because you, if you start to mingle going back to law, he's going to say in verse 11, I am troubled over the reality of your conversion. Why else would he have such fear and trouble? You know why? Because you cannot mingle justification by faith with justification by works. They're diametrically opposed. You can't have both. And if these people are starting to slide back, it's back to Hebrews, right? It's back to Hebrews. Are you, have you truly tasted of the Lord and found him to be good? Have you truly experienced the grace of God and salvation? Have you come to know him as your papa? As 4, six says, the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Papa. Are you, have you really experienced Abba, Papa? Is he, is he really your daddy? And now you're going to go back to jail by keeping some outer law? No, he says, I fear for you. I fear for you that I've labored in vain, that perhaps you're not converted. It's not that a true believer can't be tempted into these things. It's what you do with it when you're confronted with it. Because either you're going to live by grace through faith and the power of the Spirit, 
or you're going to choose to live by your own works of keeping law. Don't do that. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Amen? And this freedom is greater than any freedom that America thought she had. This is freedom of the soul. Freedom of the soul. So I would say this. Whether we are converted or not, the answer is the same in how we live. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your right standing with God. He is your entrance into the presence of God. He is your sanctification. He is your spiritual growth. He is your Lord that leads you in this way. Look to Christ. Look to him. And examine your life of any legalistic tendency and practice and kill it. Kill it. And enjoy the freedom that has been purchased on your behalf. Amazing grace, is it not? Amazing grace. I better pray before I start preaching again. <laughs> yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us to look to Christ. To realize the glorious reality of knowing you. Help us to pursue you with all our heart all our strength. Reveal to us the areas that we might have legalistic tendencies, Father, where we are really trusting in ourselves. Would you reveal that to us and help us to repent of those things? We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.